Our scripture verse this morning is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, in a few days, we, we turn the page and we have a, a new year. And uh, just a couple of days ago, Holly and I, my wife, we were sitting back and thinking, man, this, this year has passed by fast. Uh, then I recall, we said that last year. Uh, <laughs> the year before that, we've been saying that more lately. I remember my mom growing up would say, hey, as you get older, you're going to see how just life begins to go a lot quicker, right? The years just seem like they fly by. And as I'm getting older, I realize... She's right. Um, and we're coming upon this new year. And I think for most of us, as we think about the new year, we look upon it with expectation, right? It's the hope of better things. No matter what happened in this past year, we look forward to things, if you will, being new, being fresh, being renewed. And we have that, that hope. It's almost unconscious. We look forward to that. And maybe as this year we look back, maybe we have struggled with things like loneliness, maybe it's been a trying time for you spiritually, maybe you struggle with physical ailments or, or disease, maybe you've lost a loved one, maybe you have some un, unmet expectations, good expectations, good desires that for some reason God and his mercy, his goodness, and his sovereignty has simply not granted uh, to this point. All right? These things, these pains, these aches, they're all symptomatic. They're symptoms of living in a, a cursed world, of living in exile, of living outside of Eden, outside of the place where God intended for his people to live. And all humanity, we've ached this way, we've had these yearnings, these, these desires, ever since we were exiled from the Garden of Eden. We felt the pain and sorrow and death that we experience. Now the loneliness, the sorrow, it's almost unavoidable. But as we look at this text today, I think we'll see that whatever we go through, God does not intend for us to live in such pain and such hurt forever, no matter how minor, no matter how great. He does not intend for us to live outside of Eden forever. One day, God will return. He'll wipe away every tear, get rid of death, do away with, cry do away with crying, 
and sorrow. He will, as John says, make all things new. All the former, former pains of this life will pass away. That day, when we enter into, this, into that place, we'll no, no longer be in this cursed place. We will no longer be exiles. We will be at home with God. That's the very good future that John speaks about in our text today in Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And last week, uh, Tom talked about Jesus. He came, we celebrate Christmas, his coming, and he came to the earth to deliver us from exile in this sinful world and ultimately to renew a paradise, a new Eden for us. And I think we look at the Gospels, we see what Jesus does there, and it gives us a picture of what's to come, this very good future. We look at Jesus' miracles, his healings, what he does throughout the gospel. These are, these are little pictures of what we're going to see in the future as the cursed, the curse of sin and death is reversed, as disease is done away with, as all evil forces are eradicated. When we look throughout the gospels, we see Jesus do things like hear the deaf, the mute, and the blind. He heals the paralytic. He heals one with a withered hand or a woman with an incurable rush of blood or when he heals the leprous we also see this in such deeds that Jesus does he's giving us a picture what he will do finally and fully in the future when he reverses the curse curse of sin and death that we see in Genesis 3 that we experience now when all things will be renewed in the future in a new Eden a place with no death sickness or pain or tears these things, as John will say in this text, are not a part of our future. In fact, they won't even be a memory when we are again once at home with God in Eden. And as we look now at Revelation 21, 1 through 8, we have to keep in mind that this text is situated in the last book in the Bible, the very last book in the entire canon. So what John is now doing is he's drawing the strings together on promises throughout the Bible that are now going to be fulfilled finally and fully in the person of Jesus. In Genesis, we see Eden and exile. And everything there in between, we are exiles outside of Eden. Jesus is the one who delivers us from exile. And now we see John pull the final strings together and show us that we will one day enter a new Eden for those who have trusted in this crucified Messiah Jesus. We will dwell with him forever, finally and fully. He shows us the one seated on the throne is David's very son, the Messiah, the one who will one day make all things new. And we have this very good news to look forward to. Though we may struggle now, and things are certainly hard and difficult because of the curse, we have the hope that we will be made new, along with everything else that God, that God has made, one day in the future when Jesus returns to reign over the entire earth. Now look at how John begins this passage. He says, Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So what John is showing us here, he is showing us a transition from the old earth of sin and death to this new creation, this new heavens and new earth. The old earth, old earth will one day pass away and give way to this new and better creation that God is establishing for his people. But again, John is drawing the strings together on the text 
throughout the Bible, right? The story's coming to its conclusion at this point. So John's not making this stuff up, all right? John is drawing from specifically here uh, a text like Isaiah 65 and 66, where Isaiah looks forward to a new heavens and new earth with no pain, no sorrow, no crying, no mourning when all things are made right. But as we look throughout the scriptures, this is not just Isaiah's hope, right? All the biblical authors in their texts somehow point to this final, very good ending where Jesus will once again, the Messiah, God himself, dwell with his people. All right? And as we look throughout the canon, we see that, hey, as God's people entered Canaan, this land that was supposed to be an Eden, and they were exiled, Following that, we see in places like the prophets where, hey, they look forward to a re-entrance, but this re-entrance is not going to be into one sliver of territory. It's going to be the entire creation where God will dwell once again with his people. And you wonder, okay, when's this going to happen? Uh, when are all these things going to come together, this new creation where God will dwell with his people, as Isaiah looks forward to, and all these biblical authors? And you look at a text like Ezekiel 36 through 37, what do you see there? You see Ezekiel showing how the dry bones are raised to life, all things are made new. He describes it as this Edenic paradise that God's people will receive when they are resurrected from the grave. So when you take all that, it helps us fill out what John is doing here and the expectation of the entire Bible that he expects that God will one day renew everything, the entire cosmos, the entire creation, and we will live in a place with no resemblance to the cursed world. There will be continuity, right? This will, it'll be this world renewed, but there'll be no sin, no death, and no curse. Everything we experience now, all the negative, will one day be gone. All things will be glorified, including our bodies. All right? But I think we need to remind ourselves at this point, because I think for so long we've been programmed to think that heaven is the final resting place for God's people. But again, think of the story in the Bible. Ever since Eden, God's people have been looking forward to a re-entrance uh, into this very good place. But the idea of heaven is so ingrained in our minds due mainly to popular Christian teaching. But I think now we're re reorienting ourselves to think that the very good ending for God's people is this physical, renewed creation. But honestly, heaven is what I thought for so long. But now as I've returned to these teachings about the new heavens and, and new earth, I see more clearly that what God looks forward to is what God's text the Bible has for us, what it talks about is a new heavens and new earth, a new creation. If you look at Paul, for example, in Romans 8, he talks about how the creation groans, right? It too was subjected to the curse because of sin, and it awaits the revelation of God's sons, that is their resurrection, when all things will be renewed. There'll be no thorns, no thistles, no natural disasters, no death. One day when we are raised glorious, all things will be renewed, and there'll be no painful effects of sin over this earth ever again. All of creation, human and non-human, will be renewed one day. So when we come to the text, all right, we should think, what we ex should expect to find is a place, a land, right? Think of the promises to Abraham of land, of David, where a king will reign over God's people in 
the land, right? And Paul makes this clear for us, for example, in Romans 4.13, that Abraham and his sons, that is, those who place their faith in the Messiah, they will inherit this better world, this better cosmos. This is what we have to look forward to as Abraham's sons, God's very sons and daughters in the future. So God's not going to get rid of the creation. He's not going to zap it and destroy it one day as if it were evil. No, the creation is good. The physical stuff God made is good. When we look back to Genesis, um, the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, we see that every time God makes something, he says it is good, but it has been corrupted, corrupted by sin and corrupted by death in this world. So we see in the first book, Genesis, will be reversed in the final book, Revelation, when God renews everything he has made, once again making it into paradise for God's people when he makes all things new. And as we go on in this text, you see, notice what John says. He says, and the sea was no more. There will be no sea and the new heavens and new earth. All right, we can debate all day whether we think this is actual water, uh, H2O, uh, but I think John has an actual deeper symbolic meaning for what we see with, with the sea in Revelation. When you look at the sea in Revelation, what's in mind is, what's associated with this word is death, darkness, sin, the unknown. What John is saying is, in the new heavens and new earth and the new creation, there will be no sin. There will be no death. Those things will be completely eradicated. Look at what he says in verse 4 when he confirms this idea that there'll be no sea, there'll be no death. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So in the new earth, in this new garden, there won't even be the possibility of sin, of a snake slithering into the garden and ruining the very good creation that God has made for his people. All things will be new, and they'll stay that way. All right? But of course, we're in the present. We're not there yet. God is making all things new, as John confirms in Revelation 21.5. But right now, sickness plagues us, death is still with us. Death taunts us. All right. So before I came to, to teach at Southeastern Seminary, I, was, um, I taught for about two and a half years uh, at a place called the University of Mobile. It was great. It was less than an hour from the beach. If you grew up in Miami, that was an ideal uh, first job. Um, so I was there for about six months. I was right out of seminary. I was a newly minted uh, PhD. I don't feel so newly minted uh, anymore, um, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> But after about six months into my time uh, at the University of Mobile, um, I took a job. Uh, I was asked to, to do another job. I was asked to do an interim pastorate, which lasted about a year and a half, and I'm grateful I did. They were sweet people. They were great to my wife and kids. Uh, in fact, now I'm getting lots of Facebook requests uh, from some of the senior adults in that church. So I'm getting lots of messages lately uh, from them. But looking back, as Holly and I reflect, and we think, man, that was such a sweet time with these people. My duties mainly consisted of preaching on Sundays and some visitations, and every now and then I get invited out to lunch or to some kind of potluck. I mean, it was, it was great. It truly was a blessing to us. Um, and everything was going fairly smoothly. Um, you know, I did my duties preaching, lunch, potlucks, 
And then one day, I get a phone call from one of our um, deacons at the church. And he says, hey, did you do me a favor? There's this little boy in the Mobile uh, Hospital. Um, can you please go visit him and see him? So I agreed. I said yes. Um, what he told me was the boy had a heart condition, uh, there was some kind of rupture, uh, and he only had days to live. So the boy was basically just, just laying in the bed. He was hooked up uh, to machines. As far as we know, he wasn't, he wasn't conscious. So I agreed to go. I'm walking into the hospital. Um, but nothing had prepared me for what I was about to see in that room. Not my life to that point, which, is, which has been relatively sheltered uh, overall. I had been exposed to some death. Uh, some pain, but it was very distant from me. Um, but as I walk into the room, I mean, I saw the effects of the curse of death on, on full display, and I just, I was not ready for it. Um, I saw in the bed a little boy who was just laying there, uh, who had just, just days to live, and his mother was uh, in the bed laying with him, both, lo- she just kind of hugging him in the bed for as long as she, she possibly could, knowing that this was, this was coming to an end very soon. And I thought, gosh, it's just, it's not supposed to be this way. And honestly, I was devastated. I was, I was crushed. I didn't know everything I should have said, everything I should have done. I talked to the parents, I prayed with them, and then I left. Um, and the next day I had to preach, and those images in my mind, uh, they were just ingrained. I mean, I knew that <laughs> this was just wrong. Things are not supposed to be this way. I preached on the resurrection, uh, but I was a mess. I barely got through my sermon, just thinking of the images of that boy in his mind. What I assured them is the hope of a resurrection into a better place. There'll be no such death, no such pain, no such sorrow ever again, where we will dwell with God in perfect communion with him. And in fact, when we look at Isaiah, Isaiah talks about something similar, that there'll be no crying over sick children or those who pass too quickly, or those who pass at all. all right? When speaking about the new creation, Isaiah in chapter 65 says, no longer shall there be a child who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fulfill his days. There'll be long life for all there forever. There'll be no sickness or no death to ever cut our lives short ever again, to cut, or to cut our lives, period. All right? Now that's great news. That's glorious news for those who trust in Jesus. Our hearts should long for this place, right? This place, this cursed world should not be where our hope resides. God has a better place, a real physical place that is far better than where we currently reside. As we think what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, he came to the earth. He gave his life for our sins, reversing the curse, and he rose from the dead. His resurrection is, sim- is a picture of what will happen to us and the rest of creation. We will all be renewed. We will all be glorified for those who have trusted in this crucified, resurrected Messiah. He is the first fruits of our own resurrection from the grave. So yes, in the present, we do pray for healing. We pray hard for healing. We pray intentionally for healing and restoration for people that we beg God that he may do it. We pray that God might take away the pain, the loneliness, the sorrow, the unfulfilled expectations. But even if he chooses in his sovereignty, his goodwill, and his mercy not to do it, just know it's just for a short time. 
In the end, God will not withhold his hand from us forever. He will raise us to enjoy life, a fully restored life to the way things were always meant to be, in full communion, full fellowship, a full Edenic-like paradise experience with God with no pain, no death, no suffering forever. But certainly there's more than just no suffering in this place. Look at verses 2 and 3 to what John says here. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be be with them as their God. Notice the way that John describes a new Jerusalem coming down onto this creation. When we think of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, it was the place of the temple, right? Where God dwelled in the midst of his people, all right? This looked forward to a new place where God will dwell in the midst of his people, not for a time because they'll never go into exile ever again, but they will dwell with him forever in this renewed creation. And God will dwell in their midst. And notice he calls it, he likens it to a bride. All right? Why does he describe it this way? Because God will be eternally united to his people in this place, never to be separated, never to be rendered asunder ever again. They'll be united perfectly in this new creation with joy and gladness with their God, fully restored forever. Just like in the days of Adam and Eve, only better because there'll be no possibility of sin and death ever entering this place ever again. And you know what? This is good news. So if we're, if we're lonely, if we're struggling with loneliness, just know we'll dwell with one who is perfect, who will care for us perfectly and satisfy all, all our desires one day, God himself. If we're suffering, if there's pain in our life right now, we all struggle with, struggle with this to some degree, just know that God will heal, heal our suffering. He will heal our pain one day. If we're weak, because God is just, because life has just beaten us down over time, just know God one day will strengthen us, he will raise us, and he will uphold us by his very presence in the very good place that he is preparing for his people. And as you think of the new Jerusalem and Jerusalem throughout the Bible, um, when you look, think of Babylon, you think of the book of Daniel, and right here in Revelation, what John does is he compares Babylon with Jerusalem. And what was Babylon uh, in the book of Daniel or in the, in the um, broader context of the Old Testament? It was a place of exile. It was a place where, God, where God's people had been Um, exiled from Jerusalem, and now they were dwelling in a place of exile and distance from God's place, Jerusalem, and they were now in exile, away from the land, away from God's presence, away from the temple, and they were now living under oppressive rule. This is where Daniel lived, all right? So what John now does is he takes the image of Babylon, of exile, and he applies it now in the book of Revelation and contrasts that with Jerusalem. What he says is, Babylon is where we live now. This is the cursed world. For John's original readers, this would have been Rome. For us, it applies as well. It's the cursed world. It's where we live right now. We live in Babylon, 
All right? But one day our hope is to come out of Babylon, as the hope of the Jews in the Old Testament was to come out of Babylon into a restored creation. Our hope is we will come out of this exiled world, which is ultimately what Babylon pointed to. That's what we experience now every day in this cursed world in exile. And our hope is to be delivered from this place and into a new Jerusalem, a place where we will be restored to life with God forever, delivered from exile in the present, our own Babylon. All right? So as you look at this text, as we look at Jerusalem, we think of Babylon. We're never to be accustomed to life in exile in this world, right? We're always to be maladjusted, if you will, all right? This is not our home. Our current surroundings aren't to become that familiar um, to us. We're never quite to settle in. We're never quite to be that rooted in this world. Surely, uh, we pray and we serve knowing that, hey, this is really not our home. Our home is someplace much better with God, a new Jerusalem, and we are to long for this place. What we have now is nothing new, right? This Babylon, this cursed world will never satisfy us. In fact, when you see in Ecclesiastes what Solomon talks about, the book itself, I mean, it's this cursed world is a well-worn path. There have been generations who have come before us, who have lived a cursed existence. There'll be people after us uh, who will come and live this cursed existence. It's nothing new. We've experienced it. We will experience it until Jesus returns. Look at what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.9. He says, what has been is what will be, and there is nothing new under the sun. What we experience every day, difficulty, pain, turmoil, loneliness, unfulfilled expectations, is what the world has experienced for centuries, since the exile from the original garden. And this process will repeat itself long after we're gone until Jesus returns. We're not, to, we're not the first to experience the effects of the curse, all right? And we won't be the last um, unless Jesus returns. Um, it does sound depressing. And you know what? In some way, it should, right? It should cause us to look around and think, hey, I'm not satisfied with this, okay? I don't want to gain this whole world. My hope should not be in this place. It's certainly not my best life now in any way, because if we're looking to make this place our home, if our hope is in this place, all right, John says it only gets worse for us in the future in this text. But if our hope is in Jesus, the one who sits on the throne, suffering, while not made easier necessarily, is put into perspective, because we know that hopefully soon, one day, God will deliver us from our sufferings, our pains, our turmoils, all the effects of the curse. All right? Again, it doesn't make life necessarily any less painful now, but it does give us hope. It does give us a hopeful perspective on the future. Uh, Elise, Elise Fitzpatrick uh, wrote a book called Home. It's all about the new heavens and new earth and her struggle to understand uh, the uh, her pains, her disappointments, uh, her life now in light of the future. And there was a time in her life when she was um, just struggling. It seemed like one thing after another just kept hitting her. It's like she couldn't catch a break. And she talks about it in this book. She talks about how the ministry she had been involved with for years just collapsed. Uh, people she was trying to help uh, with very good intentions were maligning her. Her uncle was basically like a father to her, 
die. All right? These events and others led her to reflect, to think about what the future is going to be like. Right? And she came to a conclusion that she was indeed suffering, but, her, but what she felt was more than suffering. It was a longing for a better place. It was a longing for home, a place she was truly made for, a place where she will one day again dwell with God, as all humanity has intended to dwell since, since their departure from Eden. And one day, we will dwell in this place in a new creation. Like her, like so many others throughout history, we are Christians who should long for this place. We should not be comfortable in exile here in our Babylon of this world. Daniel wasn't, right? He saw a vision of a king who would establish his dominion over the entire earth. And he looks, he looked forward to that. The very same thing that we look forward to ourselves as believers. We should never get used to oppression, racism, untimely deaths, murder, divisions, broken homes. We should never be satisfied with the way things are. We are exiles and strangers, all right? We are, whether we have realized it or not, we are outsiders in this world. Outsiders who are sojourning to a better place. All right? That's why Peter says at the end of his um, first epistle, he says, right, the church in Babylon greets you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church in this world greets you. All right? Looking forward to this better place, this inheritance that will come out from the sky and transform this entire earth. Our hearts should long for this place where joy and gladness will take over this existence. All right. Now this is what John describes in verses 1 through 4, what's to come. Now in verses 4 through 8, he now puts things in perspective for the now, the present. He switches gears a bit, and if you will, changes to the present situation of what's actually happening. He says in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice the present tense, right? He's in the process of making all things new, but we're not there yet. We haven't yet entered the new heavens and new earth, all right? We are not yet in this place where we will be when Jesus returns, all right? We await the fulfillment of what John talks about in verses 1 through 4, but even though it's coming in the future, John says basically it's as good as done, right? He says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, all right? God tells him it will happen in the future. You can trust it. You can bank on it. And he said to me, verse 6, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the, the spring of the water of life without payment. What he's recording here is that God's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is sovereign over all of history, and he will see to it that this is done one day in the future. And to those who are thirsty, those who desire eternal life in Jesus Christ, God will give it to them. He will give them this place of eternal satisfaction and joy and gladness forever. All right. But notice here what John says in verse 7, right? He again puts things in perspective for us because we have this promise in the future, this hope in Christ. But look what he says. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes will have this heritage or inheritance. 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. All right. Notice here John uses the word overcome all right, or conquer. All right. What this means is those who overcome the present world, those who overcome life in Babylon, those who persevere in their life and faith in Christ are the ones who will inherit this coming world. There's again, like we see in Hebrews, for example, this call to persevere through the present sufferings and difficulties of life until we see, until we experience what's promised to us in the future. It's a a consistent teaching throughout the Bible. We see it again here repeated by John as the entire Bible is about to be closed out in the following chapter, all right? But what we see here in verse 8, it's just the opposite, right? It's not those who overcome, but here's a picture of what it looks like to be, of what it looks like to be overcome by life in Babylon, by life in exile. Verse 8, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And notice some of the things that, that John has mentioned here. I'll, I'll just bring up a few. He talks about the cowardly and the unfaithful. That is, those who punt their faith, those who give up their faith for fear of persecution, difficulty, and trials of this life. Um, the sexually immoral, right? There's no need to go into detail in this, but there was pressure then, and there's pressure now, and there's pressure now certainly to be overcome or to succumb to the, the sexual mores of this day and age in all its various shapes and sizes. And G.K. Beale makes a good point. He says, primarily, when John writes this, he has the church in mind, all right? These are a reference to the dangers of people who are involved in the Christian community of being overcome by the present world, the desires, the attractions of everything around us. If this happens, Beale and other commentators would say, and I think it's rightly in line with what John says, that they are overcome rather than overcoming the present world, showing they're not fit for a new Jerusalem, but they're fit for what John describes, that is, a lake of fire. And John describes this future just as the new Jerusalem is physical and a restored creation, the future um, trial and suffering of all unbelievers who don't overcome is also physical suffering as well in the future. It's not an either or, one spiritual, one physical. It's really a both and. Both existences for for the godly and ungodly will be either physical eternal joy or physical eternal suffering as John describes here in this text. And I think this stands as a good warning for us. Um, Just like Hebrew stands as a good warning, I think so too uh, in this uh, second to last chapter in the Bible. Life in exile is tough. There are so many enticements, allurements to be just like it, to be conformed to its whims and desires. But John is not talking about not associating with this world, right? Not going swimming or watching, uh, going to the movies, right? If that were the case, how how would we see the new episode uh, for Star Wars, right? Um, What John expects that, yes, we're going to live in Babylon. But as we live in Babylon, we're not overcome by it, but instead 
We're salt and light in a dark place, bearing witness to the God with whom we will one day dwell in a new Jerusalem. Those he's referring to, those who won't receive a future inheritance in a new creation, but will receive a portion in the lake of fire, are those who are indistinguishable from Babylon, indistinguishable from the present world. Their life shows a consistent habit. This is simply who they are. What John describes here, some of these categories, describe those who are indistinguishable from the present world. There's no repentance. There's no restoration. This is just the way they are. They are citizens of the present age. And there's always going to be pressure from this world. So many different angles. We get it from all over the place. But I think for John reader, John's readers, just like for us, there are some, some common pressures that we see that I think can sum up what John is describing here in verse 8. Right? There's always the pressure to worship a God that is not found in the Scriptures, a God that's um, no wrath and all love, for example. Uh, a God doesn't require the sacrifice of his son, the shedding, shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sin. A God who says that all paths to him are viable. All right? A God that permits, and of course this God permits a much looser sexually and morally lifestyle. It doesn't take things like the full divinity of Jesus and the future judgment of unbelievers seriously, right? And so both belief in God and ethics, how we live, are always consistently things that Christians are seemingly pressured uh, to compromise in this day and age. What John would say is, we have to persevere, overcome, so that we might inherit the future world that is to come. And the pressure certainly is all around us, right? Work, families, schools, it seems almost increasingly uh, so. And certainly no one wants to be ostracized or ashamed or maybe even possibly worse, all right? But these things, these pressures that people succumb to, as we see here in verse 8, these are not characteristics of those who will inherit the coming world, right? If you read John's first epistle, he says that our faith overcomes the world, right? We're certainly not saved by works in any way, but the one whose faith is genuinely centered in the person of Jesus, there will be struggles, there will be trials, but ultimately we will overcome life in exile, life in Babylon. Our life as a whole will look different, both in what we believe about God and the way we live our lives, than those who are citizens of this present age. When we believe that, when we show that with our lives, we truly show that our hope is in Jesus. Our faith is in him. That we are citizens of a far better place. A place with joy that is lasting and eternal life with God forever. We want to be these people regardless of pressure. And I think as we look at this text, we see really it's the fulfillment of everything throughout the scriptures, all the hopes, all the promises, God will dwell with his people forever. Ever since their exile from the garden, humanity has been looking for one who would reopen the way home. And he has come. Jesus came. He shed his blood, right, paving the way for God's people to follow him and re-enter paradise. All those who believe in him will one day receive this place that John talks about. No sorrow, no pain, no, mo no mourning. Joy with God forever, forever. For all those who believe in Jesus, Abraham's son, David's son, all right, we will inherit 
this future place. He will deliver us from exile in this world into a place that is far better than this one. This is the place for which all of us should truly long. But remember, Jesus is currently making all things new. We're not quite there yet. All things are being renewed. We're not yet in the new heavens and new earth. So what do we do? How do we live our lives? I'm going to leave you with just a couple things before we go. So one, I think there's a clear call to persevere the struggles, trials, and temptations of this life. Not to get too accustomed to the world in which we live. We pray for it. We yearn that people might be saved, right? We, we strive for the welfare of our city, but ultimately we are to persevere through this life, not being overcome by it, being distinguishable when we believe about God and how we live our lives from this world that we might one day inherit a better one because of our faith in Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Messiah. There then is a call for us to persevere, all right, and not to be overcome. Secondly, I think we should have an urgency uh, for those who are living in darkness, who are citizens of this world and don't know it. They might even be happy they're living in it, okay? Uh, Jackie Pullinger was an English missionary to what was called uh, the Walled City in Hong Kong. All right, she was a single woman, all right? And back then, it, was, um, it wasn't the norm uh, for single women to go on, on missions, but she went on mission uh, unaccompanied to Hong Kong, and this city was called the Walled City. It was a dark place. It was a six-acre walled city within Hong Kong. It wasn't governed by uh, a British governor. It was governed by a Chinese governor. And when that person died, they never replaced it with anyone. So lawlessness and anarchy simply reigned uh, in that place. This is the place that she went into. And this is how she describes it. She says, The Walled City was a haven for gold smuggling, drug smuggling, illegal gambling, and every kind of vice. In her first trip to the city, she recalls, we started walking down a slime-covered passageway. I will never forget the smell and the darkness, a fetid smell of rotten foodstuffs, excrement, offal, and general rubbish. All right? But she loved this place. She loved the people of that place because her hope is that one day they would wake up to their darkness and they would desire a better place. This is what she says. So later on, she reflects, years later after her ministry, and she says the reason why she persevered in her ministry to the people of this place was that she hoped and she imagined one day with another city in place of the walled one, one that was ablaze with light. And in that place, there was no more crying, no more pain, and no more death. She hoped to introduce the people of this walled city to the one who could bring them into a better one, Jesus. All right. And while many of us won't be called to such dark places, I think we all live in dark surroundings. We're in this world. So we should have a desire to both proclaim what's to come and to live out what it's like to be a citizen of the new Jerusalem, that people might be drawn to our God and one day dwell with him in the future. But maybe you're here, um, and this is the first time you're hearing about Christianity, this new Jerusalem, this place in the future. I just want to encourage you, this world, I think no matter how good it can be, we see cracks, right? We see that it's not perfect. It will fail us. People will fail us. But there is a God who will not fail you, 
who will dwell with you one day in perfect communion, satisfy all your desires, and bring you into a place of joy and prosperity forever. What Jesus offers us is far better than anything this world could offer us. My hope would be you would put your trust in him. Let's pray.